a long time ago, far into the annals of history, the Arthurian Knights conceived of a game. You know, Christmas is kind of boring. Is there anything we could be doing? Yes, you're right. They are rather boring. Perhaps uh, uh, something is needed to spice these times up. A game, perhaps? Ah, indeed. A game. Surely you do not jest. Nay, nay. I'm thinking a game with, uh, probably rules. Pray thee tell me what kind of rules. I have it an idea. Holy fuck! <laughs> Who be thee? I am a knight of some renown. But I heard if you discussing mayhap a game. Prithee, tell us how to game, sir, fair knight, my lord. Yes, this is quite good. In this game, I shall kneel, and thou shalt take thy blade and cleaveth mine head frometh my body until I am decapitated. Cleaving your neck in twain? I. Forsooth, that doesn't sound like a very good game, good sir. Nay, thou art incorrect. It is grand fun. Ah. But you see, here beeth the best part. One year hence, I then doeth the same to thou. Hard pass. I think he's onto something. Shall we begin the game then? Yes, I'll go first. No, wait, you go first. fantasy fans and welcome to swords and satire the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art i'm your dungeon manager jamie mokel here with my courtly co-hosts i'm chelsea hollowell the bold i'm nice. a knight of the round i just want to eat and be merry at the round table feasting all day if you know what i mean like but food yeah. Okay. But, uh, you know, sometimes there are knights that come in and try to break up the good time. Like who? Like that green fellow. I don't know. It seemed like fun to me. <laughs> that is excellent, sir knight. Happy to hear that we have such festive fellows protecting our lands. Me? My name is Jack Olander. I'm a Disney princess who sings a song about working in a Camelot brothel. <laughs> so you're a princess who works in a brothel? Uh, I, the end of the film, princess. Not at the beginning, you know what I'm I, saying? I mean, I wasn't judging. I just want to clarify. It's true, yes. You'll have to see when my, when my spinoff comes out. Yeah. <laughs> Well, guys, this is an auspicious occasion. Yes. Because Swords and Satire, we've been going at this for quite a while now. So long, in fact, that this is our 100th episode. Woo! Verily. 
<laughs> so props to us for sticking to it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for being dedicated to the craft. You know what helps us stay dedicated? Our patrons. I was thinking the same thing. Patrons? What are those? Just like Gawain has Arthur to have his back, we have patrons who have our back. And they support us on patreon.com slash swordsandsatire. They give us monthly contributions out of the goodness of their hearts and because they love us. And we love them. That's right, listeners. You're King Arthur and you can give us Excalibur in the form of monthly donations <laughs> to your favorite artists. Yeah. And you also get exclusive content and you can vote on the movies we watch every month. Now, Chelsea, a little pixie came and told me a rumor that now, even at the $2 level, patrons get audio content every it's, month? It's true. We just started providing content for all of the tiers. So at every tier, you'll find exciting stuff each month. Right on. But enough self-promotion. Guys, we have got... A big deal to talk about today. Yep. The biggest deal. Because this is the first... Not only is this the 100th episode, but we planned something a little special for everyone. We are doing our first ever review slash analysis of a movie that we saw in a movie theater. Yes. Which feels like a big deal. Wow, that's great. When are we doing it? Right now. Wow, this is great. <laughs> you remember how we were just at the movie theater? Oh, yeah. And we watched the movie. That was in a, a few hours ago. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're here talking about it with you. Wild. So this week we are talking about The Green Knight, a movie that we have waited over a year to see in theaters. I know. Bad times last year. You know what I mean? Yeah. Barely made it out to the theater last year. It's true. The only thing we had to comfort ourselves were memories of Cats 2019 in theaters. Which Chelsea and I never saw. But I have given you memories of, nonetheless. <laughs> I feel like as much as Jack has talked about it, I feel like I've seen it. Fair enough. I believe the last movie Chelsea and I saw in a theater before the pandemic was The Lighthouse? Yeah. Not bad. And honestly, yeah, we could have done way worse. We could have seen cats. <laughs> I'm just saying, there there hasn't been a Jellicle Knight of the Round Table yet. Oh, God. Yet. The Jellicle Knight. It's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> More on that later. Yeah. Well, guys, let's get into it. Let's start talking about The Green Knight. This is a current film in theaters now. It actually redeems two former Swords and Satire film actors, in a way, if you want to think of it in a particular light. Because this film <laughs> stars both Dev Patel, who listeners may remember from The Last Airbender, Womp Womp. Real stinky. Sometimes it's hard to believe we actually reviewed that movie. <laughs> yeah. It almost feels like I didn't watch it. If only. Maybe you're from a better reality. Dev Patel was good, though. Yeah. And it also features Joel Edgerton, who listeners may remember from the film Bright. Because Joel played the orc cop. I mean, a cab, but 
He was a relatable character, though. One of the most interesting parts about the movie. So, Sure. I mean, I like Jacoby as much as is probably possible to like any character in that movie, which is not very good. You guys remember Bright? <laughs> Jack comes from a much better reality. <laughs> yeah. But enough content that's surely going to be uh, in outtakes. <laughs> I believe Chelsea has a summary ready to go for The Green Knight. That's right. This one is so easy to do a summary for you guys. There's a Christmas game. Ooh, is it a fun game? Yes. Then there's revelry for a whole year. Mm Mm-hmm. Sounds good so far. Walking through the woods until you get to your friend's house. Is this another night before Christmas scenario with no stakes or consequences? Yeah. And then at your friend's house, you get to chill there for a few days. Everybody's kissing you. It's consensual. This sounds wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you walk to another friend's house who lives in the woods. Love and it. Uh, you get to play another game. Sweet. I love games. Is it Spirit Island? Spirit Island's my favorite game. You're not entirely wrong. Oh, it's a little different than that. Oh, okay. Well, what's it like? How do I play? Well, first, you got to get an axe. Okay. I got one right here. Hold on. Uh, Okay. I'm ready. How are you keeping that? (laughs) Pocket dimension. Yeah. Come on. Bag of holding. Nice. Okay. Then I kneel down on the ground. Uh Uh-huh. Got it. Then you raise up the axe. Mm-hmm. Okay, hefting axe now. And then you bring it down on my neck. Excuse me? <laughs> That's the game. Okay. Cool, huh? Yeah, I guess. Believe it or not, <laughs> it's a co-op. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there you go. That's the movie. <laughs> well said. Why don't we head into the delve? Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of The Green Knight. Guys, this movie is a wild fucking ride. I know. I mean, we were giving our version of the summary in the summary, but (laughs) (laughs) this is based on a myth. Or a legend. Yes. Or a history. So, yeah, this is based on a 14th century Middle English chivalric romance, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which was, uh, you know, there's a lot of interesting lore and history for this epic poem. But uh, one of the interesting bits is that it was almost lost to time. The author wrote it, and years later, cringed at their own past and deleted as many of the texts as possible. It was almost lost to a fire, right? Yeah, that's right. It was almost lost in a fire in 1731, along with a manuscript of Beowulf, which got singed. But uh, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight was saved. I'm glad. It's a great story. Perhaps... The pagan gods wanted to make sure that this story was preserved through time. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the original story is about a knight who is tested. It's about knightly honor and value, valor, 
Value too. <laughs> Knights have great values. And um, yes. upholding the five knightly virtues. And Gawain is kind of like a Gary Stew. <laughs> Gawain, I should say. Gwyn. That's his the correct Or Gowan. Yeah. Where are you gallant? I promise that we're going to say at least five different versions of his name by the end of the podcast. Probably. And so it's it's not as relatable. Uh, they changed it for the movie, um, which which was a good change. Um, good change. Yeah. The kind of messaging about the movie is more about overcoming your fears. And loneliness. Yeah. And um, so... The general plot is kind of similar where Gawain challenges the Green, takes up the Green Knight's challenge on Christmas when the Green Knight comes to Arthur's court. These guys, just so uh, so we're, we're clear, the Green Knight here is this naturey fellow, a lot of leaf motif and, and kind of a fake stuff, kind of fake, kind of green man, as yeah. it were. Green Man or... Certainly in, in the film version, he looks very much like the Irish Green Man or the yes. Celtic Green Man. Or like the Wiccan Holly King. Yes. He comes in with a holly branch riding his horse. And yes. Very cool. So, so... That horse is a flesh horse, by the way. Yes. Gotta um, have a flesh horse. If you're a leaf man, you have to have a flesh horse. If you're a Trojan, you have a wood horse. <laughs> So he's kind of a symbol for pagan traditions. And uh, how? Challenging Christian, new, the new Christian faith. And the pagan uh, tradition of being immortal. Right. <laughs> that old chestnut. So Gwen, Gwen, <laughs> Gwen or Groin. Gowan. Gwen. Um. Gene. <laughs> Gary. <laughs> <laughs> George. <laughs> <laughs> He's the only one who's young and foolhardy enough to take the Green Knight up on his ch Christmas game challenge. Yeah, Arthur's like, oh, if I was like 30 years younger, I'd, I'd jump over this fucking table, chop your head right off, man. It's true. It seems like Gawain feels he has nothing to lose because he has no great stories to tell. Yeah. I don't know. He, based on the beginning of this movie, he's... uh. Living it up, living in a nice castle with his mom, Morgan Le Fay, hanging out in brothels. I think he's got some great stories to tell. <laughs> King Arthur's like, tell me one of your great deeds, nephew Gawain. Oh, I, I, I had sex with a prostitute this morning before I came to this party. Hell yeah. <laughs> Arthur would be way into that. Yeah. <laughs> right on, brother. Fist bump. <laughs> I was going to say, that would be the fist bump moment between them. <laughs> And um, Gwyn quickly realizes the trap he's walked into because after he cuts off the Green Knight's head, the Green Knight starts talking to him. He's like, okay, so according to the rules of my game, in a year, you have to come to my court and let me chop off your head. Classic. Fair is fair. Great game. And so um, Gwyn like, just whiles away an entire year. And then has to set off on his... Hold on, hold on. Let's let's, let's just be clear. I'm pretty sure he drunkenly uh, <laughs> philanders his way through a year. Okay. It's true. He's Kinda getting into bar away. fights. Yeah. 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 He has to leave the safe human civilization for the wild lands that are out of myth and legend. 
And uh, he faces many challenges of body, mind, and spirit until he finally finds the Green Chapel and has to meet his fate and face the Green Knight. And uh, he has like... He goes great. Right as he's like facing his fate, which he set up for himself based on his own decisions. So that's interesting. Um, he we, has a, we weave our own fate. Yeah. He has a side vision of a coward's life if he were to run away. And so we could get into all of that. But uh, yeah, so that general plot follows pretty closely with the original myth. But they take uh, storytelling liberties with some of the details about Gawain and his motivations. And that makes the character more compelling for a modern audience. Yeah, uh, definitely some big changes because Gawain and the legend is like Chelsea said like kind of like the best knight he's a great warrior he's an awesome like poet and storyteller he's like the chad knight yeah of arthur's court he's this young buck who just everybody loves and he's got like a confident head on his shoulder and that is decidedly right from the beginning of this movie we see not the character that we're introduced to right and most of those traits are almost identical to Lancelot, but the main factor that separates them is one of them is not screwing Arthur's wife. That would be Gowan, who is uh, Arthur's nephew, yes? Yes, that would be very inappropriate. Yes, Gwyn is Arthur's nephew. As opposed to Arthur um, and Morgan Le Fay. <laughs> yeah, Morgan Le Fay is Gwyn's mother. They, they have a sort of Folgers dark roast coffee <laughs> sort of relationship. So, do you guys want to talk about Gawain first, or the interplay between the Christian and pagan magics? Oh, let's save that one for, for the wrap-up. Let, let's talk character development and, and the story arc here. Alright, so Gawain, he has a lot of fears. Yeah, being responsible, that's one of his big fears. He ha he's afraid of living his best life. Aren't we all? He's afraid of what people will think of him and his choices. Yeah, he's got a lot of concerns. Like, we can really see it embodied really nicely in his relationship with Essel, the prostitute. Mm -hmm. And just so we're clear here, sex work is real work. Mm -hmm. So get that out of the way right from the beginning. But Gowan is a lot more concerned with the knightly appearance of what... It seems like he's very concerned with what... People like Arthur and the other knights will think of him if they if uh, if they knew that he had a relationship. And it seems like a fairly close and loving relationship he has with Essel. Yes, they seem to genuinely like each other. Yeah, which was not really uh, necessarily an important part of marriage back in the day. But no, it's true. But the friction comes from Essel wanting to make it official between them yeah Gowan's like let's not put labels on anything yeah exactly i think he's afraid of what the other knights and his mother will think of her even though they're very chill from what we see in the film yeah, yeah i mean that's the problem with people's fears about being judged though right we often internalize a version of reality that we expect from others it's true. Now, that being said, there's also shitty assholes out there who would judge you for things like this that really have no bearing on them whatsoever, but especially in honor-based societies like Arthur's Court. 
Right. And we've mentioned that one of the main things that drives Gowan is fear, but we haven't, I think, said the word insecurity in this part yet. He doesn't feel like he can really trust himself. Yes, he's full of doubt. Yeah, self-doubt. It's only when Arthur confronts Gowan with like, hey, tell me something cool you've done and he can't say anything that he's like, he feels like this risk that he's taking with the Green Knight is the only thing so far that can define him in a positive way. And yeah. He, when he's talking later to his friend, the Lord and Lady of this castle that he stumbles upon during his travels, and he like it's a respite on his journey. When he's telling them about his quest, the Lord asks him, "So you just go on this quest, say." That you've done what you've done, return, and then you're a man of virtue and honor? Yeah, it's great. Well, seems so easy. (laughs) (laughs) You could basically just lie. (laughs) I think he said something about, like, I hope we don't miss our old friend when the new you comes out of there. Oh, yeah, that was a good line. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so when Gwyn was talking about all that and the Lord was questioning him about it, the Lord asked, well, is this what you want to become a knight? And Gwyn is like, well, I need to embody these virtues to be a knight. Maybe then I won't lose my boots again. <laughs> so he doesn't care about the five virtues of of knighthood. He just wants to have the status of being a knight because it, he thinks it'll make him someone in the court. It'll give him distinction and prestige. He also has this pressure from being part of this royal family, being Arthur's nephew, being related to Morgan Le Fay, being surrounded by all these proud warriors who, you know, I think we kind of get the implication that, you know, the other knights have proven themselves. They, right. you know, they've told their stories to Arthur. They're probably regaling everybody in the scene in the beginning about what they've done over their quests and in their chivalric duties and everything. And Gowan just doesn't have any of that to speak of. And that's, you know, he's going to find the values of his community to be important things to uphold. He doesn't really question it. And I think that's what Chelsea's touching on here is that those might not be what he wants as an individual, but as a member of his community, he feels the need to embody those virtues, even if they're not really important to him. And it's not really who he is. And I think, like, it's it's a tension, right? I think maybe part of him does kind of want it. Like, in the final scene, when the knight is, when the green knight is getting ready to uh, give him a, a chop on the neck, as it were, he keeps, like, freaking out and, and skittering away, but then, like, trying to steal himself and, like, hold himself there to let his neck be cut. And like, he seems like he's very caught in between, you know, wanting to let it happen for his honor and not wanting to let it happen because he doesn't want to fucking have his head cut off, which is a reasonable impulse. Yeah, he has the line where the axe is about to come down and Gowan flinches away and the knight is, the green knight is like, did you just flinch? I didn't flinch. I didn't flinch, you cut my head off. And Gowan is like, well, yeah, but... I'm not like you. And he's like, well, I gave you a year to prepare. Come yeah. on. And Gowan is like, well, if you gave me one or 100, it wouldn't matter. <laughs> yeah. 
trying to cut my head off. And it's kind of sad, you know, it it brings me back to a line of Essel's right before he's Gwyn is leaving on his quest. They meet up together and little hanky panky, if you know what I mean. I mean, maybe in the woods. But after that, they're talking Yeah, forest sex. And then um, she is saying to him, why do you have to go after greatness? Isn't good goodness enough? Oh, that is a good line. It is. And it's sad because she wants him to stay there with her and make a life with her. That's when she asks him to make her his lady. Yeah. I mean, clearly what she's saying is, I love you how you are. Right. You don't need to impress me. You don't need to prove anything to me. Yeah. I Yeah, I love you, basically. And he can't say anything to her. He's completely silent. He's dead set on doing this to make a name for himself. He feels, it almost is like, he feels like if he doesn't do something like this, he won't matter to anyone. Right. And she's trying to tell him that's not true and he can't listen. He can't hear it. And it's sad because he's this young man who has so much to live for rushing towards his death because he thinks it'll bring him honor and glory. This is literally a story about toxic masculinity. Yes. And I say or, that with or, a full understanding of what that term actually means and like this is I'm not just like throwing this out there as like any kind of like uh catchphrase or whatever like Our friends at Cinema Therapy called it um limiting uh masculinity and that's good too. Yes, I like limiting masculinity because it's less loaded. But right. I mean, this is what we're talking about, right? He has to go and get himself killed because of an agreement he made not understanding the consequences of them. He's a brash youth who thought he could impress his friends. Yeah. And didn't realize, yeah, the full import. And sometimes when we're young and we're trying to impress our friends, we do end up making big mistakes that have long-term consequences. It's sad. But I think a lot of this is most embodied in Gowan's kind of hallucinogenic version of his future where he... Oh, that's what I called, just real quick, that's what I called before his, like, side vision of the coward's life. Yes. So we we get to the end, like, kind of the, the third act here. He's in the chapel and... The green chapel. In the green chapel. And we see the scenario play out. We don't realize this is Gowan imagining it. We, we believe that this is the continuity of the film, mm-hmm. where he runs away... He leaves the chapel. He apologizes to the knight, I think. Yeah. Runs out, starts running through the woods, finds his horse who was stolen like at the end of act one by a kind of a mad prophet trickster boy. Scavenger. Scavenger boy. I kind of saw him as a trickster fae, almost like Puck. Yes, a, a puckish youth, we'll yeah, call him. Yeah, Because I believe he's just called Thief. Scavenger. Or Scavenger in the, in the credits. But... So we, this is a version of it's playing out of what would happen if he ran away. He's he's having this dream, this vision, while he's waiting to have his head cut off. And he escapes. He goes back. He tells his story to Arthur. And Arthur, and, and it, this scene is very disorienting because everything happens really quickly. And it feels incredibly, like, out of nowhere. Like, he gets away. He gets back home. In a few minutes, he gets home. He tells the story to Arthur. Arthur gives him Excalibur. Gowan is crowned king. 
in yeah. a matter of like five minutes. So uh, again, it makes much more sense when you know that this is a vision playing out in his head. And it just is this the vision of that a young person would have. Yeah. Yeah. And he doesn't speak the entire vision. Right. And there's just a lot of like meaningful looks. Yeah. And then there's this heartbreaking scene where Essel is giving birth to their child and basically uh, Merlin shows up with some of the knights and like they take the baby. Gwen claims it. Yeah, Gwen claims the child. They throw money on the blood stain from the birth. Yeah. Like because that's all the prostitute, right? It's yeah. a very poignant image of the coins just spilling into this pool of blood from yeah. childbirth. You know, he's seeing all, you know, how he hurts Essel. He achieves his goal of being uh, regarded highly in the eyes of the court through cowardice. Right. He is, uh, supposedly, like, lies about killing the Green Knight when he gets back or getting the better of him in some way. Yeah. His son, he, like, has a vision of his son growing up and dying on a battlefield then he has a daughter by his another by his wife that he we see him marry, and then there's like an army surging in to take over the castle at Camelot, and everybody slowly leaves Gwen's Gwen's side. Yeah, and he's left there alone. And that's why it really enforces the theme that I thought was kind of the most prevalent or one of the more prevalent ones, which is loneliness and and kind of the feeling of being alone in the world because nobody understands your struggles or because you just feel like you can't connect to people. You try to take these actions to connect or to feel important, but they just leave you feeling emptier and emptier. Well, an important part of this vision at the end of the vision, once everybody has left him and Gwen has lost everything, he takes off the sash, the magical sash that's supposed to protect him from harm that his mother gave him, he lost, and then he got from the lady at the castle. He takes it off in the vision and his head falls off. I think he actually like pulls it out of his stomach in the vision. Yeah. Or something. Yeah, it's, it's like a wound. Yeah. Yeah. It's Which is, that's a, that's actually great. It's a wound. The sash that was supposed to protect him is like a wound to on him. To his pride. Yeah. Yeah. As a knight. And, like, in this vision, he never takes this off. Like, that's the other thing, is he's so afraid for his life. When he meets his new wife, they're about to bone down, and he's, like, won't take the sash off. Yeah. It's become this obsession of his to try to avoid death. And it's not until he's lost everything that he's like, well, I don't even care about avoiding death anymore. And after that, his vision is done? And then we're back in the green chapel with him still as a young man and the green knight is still standing over him. Oh, and then he says, I'm ready. Yeah. And he really means it that time. And he takes off the sash. Right. He removes the sash. Then he says, I'm ready. Yeah. And the green knight is like, oh, very good, my brave knight. Yeah. And he caresses his face. Yeah. And then gives him a little nick on the neck, a little cut. And then he's like, we're even. <laughs> <laughs> that was a funny prank, right? Yeah. He <laughs> oh, green knight. He jokingly says the line, off with your head. <laughs> what a card. Yeah. yeah. 
And that's it. <laughs> and it ends. It ends right there <laughs> with them kneeling together. But so by facing his fears rather than letting them hound him his entire life, he's able to come to a kind of peace. And he will be in a state where others are drawn to him. I mean, others are still drawn to him no matter what. He has this charisma, but he doesn't, he can't see the virtues that he already has, you know? Yeah, he's blinded by expectations and he is missing out on the qualities that people enjoy. I mean, Arthur seems to genuinely like Gowan regardless. Esso mm -hmm. loves him and wants to marry him. His mother, well, we we got to talk about his mom and the magic and stuff. So we'll we'll come back to that. But he seems well liked, but he feels like a loner. Mm -hmm. So we mentioned a little bit how he wants to more make a name for himself than live up to the values of what makes a knight a knight. Yeah. But like you're saying, people like him. He gives himself a real hard time. But if you evaluate the way he interacts with strangers in the story, he's very friendly. Yeah. And he is often virtuous. It's when he begins to doubt himself again that he sort of falls away from the knightly virtue. He, he has a few uh, little issues. Like, he ignores those kids on the road when he's first leaving, but... Yes, he does. Mostly he's a helpful fellow. Yes. He does like to help people... And ghosts. He might be a little withholding of generosity, and people kind of pressure him to be more generous, and he does respond to that. Yeah. There's a scene where there's a ghost of a young woman who is saying, my head is at the bottom of this pond. Please go get it for me. I want it, right? And Gowan is like, all right, what can you give me in return? And she's like, why would you ask me that? Why would you ever ask me that? Yes, yeah, yeah. she says it twice. She's like, yeah, basically, like, you're a knight. You're supposed to just, like, help people. That's your job, basically. But it's after she just told him how she died. Well, yeah, that's true. Which is, uh, she gave a traveler, a traveler, a man, like, a year beforehand, respite. A place to rest for the night. Right. He wanted to bone down with her. She refused. He came back and cut off her head. And so she just told Gawain that. And then he's like, what will you give me for it? Come on, dude. A literal incel killed me. <laughs> yeah. I need some sympathy yeah. for my guy. He also tries to touch her and she's like, don't do that. You're a knight. Don't force You should the fuck. know better. Yeah. He was trying. She's night shaming him. He was trying to see if she was ethereal or not. Exactly. Yeah, but you you can't ask. You yeah. can't ask a ghost that. Question. Yeah, but he was just like reaching out toward her, and she's just like, "Bro, what the fuck are you doing?" <laughs> but he <laughs> listens to her. He's me. like, "You're right. You're right." Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it it was so much like a little kid just being like, "Oh, a ghost," and someone being like. Don't do that. Oh, yeah, you're right. I know. It's just a moment of curiosity. But then he does dive down into the water for her head. And there's yeah. this really trippy scene where the water turns bright red and, like, he sees the stars and stuff. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he goes on quite a few trips, like, literally and figuratively throughout this film. Yeah. 
And he gets into a lot of little uh, scuffs with uh, meeting people on the road. There's another trip that happens from one of those scuffs. The scene where some hooligans beat him up and tie him up. He denounces his knighthood. They say, are you a knight? And he's like, no, I'm not a knight. And they're like, you said you were. That's his cowardly side coming out. Yeah, he's like, no, you called me a knight. I just didn't correct you. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, Which of the dick move? Yeah. Yeah. So they break his stuff, like his blessed shield and everything. They tie him up. Yeah, yeah. They steal some stuff. Then the scavenger trickster, who's like the ringleader of this group, he takes the Green Knight's axe that Gwyn is traveling with and Gwyn's horse and says, I will finish your quest for you, Sir Knight. And he takes off on the horse and his friends are like, where are you going? They chase after him and they leave Gwyn there. <laughs> and they leave the sword. Yeah. Yes. So it, it's showing a shot of Gowan there tied up mm -hmm. on the ground. He's gagged. His arms are bound behind his back and his knees and ankles are tied up. And he just sort of reclines his head on the ground like he's given up, right? He's yeah. weary and he's like sort of been beaten down. So he lays his head on the ground. It shows a shot of the wind blowing through the tops of the trees. And then it cuts back to like what he's seeing of the forest. It starts panning around and slowly getting more verdant green with more vegetative growth and flowers and moss everywhere. And as it starts to pan back around toward Gowan, it shows something is off about his legs. And then as it starts showing the rest of him, it's a sun-bleached skeleton of his clothes still with the gag and the ropes tied around him. I thought that was neat. <laughs> That's a hell of a place to end the movie right here at 40 minutes in. Yeah. I heard some people in the theater gasp. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty intense. Yeah. And then it keeps panning around, right? Yeah. And comes back to him. And that was sort of like a thought process he went He's through, a right? non-skeleton again. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I think this is our first vision of a future that Gowan has played out in his head. Yes. If he gives up now, he's just going to die here. He's just that skeleton in the woods. And that's what spurs him on, and he, like, fights to uh, to use his sword to free himself. Yeah. yeah. I so. really appreciated seeing that mental process done in such a, like, really visual way. This yeah. movie does a lot without words. It does. It's really good at visual storytelling. I think I mentioned it on a recent episode, but I saw a quote recently that was... A good teacher tells you where to look, but not what to see. <laughs> nice. And I think this movie does a ton of that show, don't tell. Yeah. Storytelling. Let, yeah. Let's talk about another scene that is bizarre visual storytelling and a complicated hiccup on Gowan's journey. Let's talk about the giants. Yeah. Yes. I can't stop thinking about them, dude. <laughs> good. Let's get into it then, They're because that is a trip. Like just like for the what's you know the context here, Gowan is going through a valley, and suddenly he sees these big old naked giants, like forty, fifty, sixty feet tall, just walking down the valley. I think they're taller than that. A hundred feet, like a mile. 
Sure. They're even. taller Huge. than the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. Their hand just like comes up over the horizon. And he's yeah. like, hey, giants, like maybe give me a ride on your shoulder through the valley. And one of them like reaches out like it's going to squish him. Well, they seem helpful. It's really hard to tell. It seemed like it was going to help him, and then he flinched away from it. Hmm, good point. Yeah, he yelled out to them, hey, I need your help. And one turned and looked at him, tried to speak, but its voice was so deep you couldn't understand what it was saying, yeah. which I, I thought was a neat detail. And then he, yeah, he yells, let me cross the valley on your shoulder. And like Jack said, that's when she reaches out for him, and I think she's trying to pick him up. But maybe yeah. Yeah. Well, the flinching is important. He's terrified because it's a giant stone hand reaching for him. This is another time where he takes an action that he soon regrets and doesn't know how to correct it. So I think the giants are the round table. Oh. Interesting. And you've heard you may have heard the expression on the shoulders of giants. Oh, good. Which he asked to ride on their shoulders, right? Fuck, I didn't get that. That's so good, Jack. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Because they're saying everyone here at the round table has a great legend behind them. Yes. What's yours? He doesn't have one. Yeah. And now he's on this difficult journey, and he sees the giants there, which could just take him wherever he wants, right? He's surrounded by the strongest king in the world and all these legendary heroes. He could get whatever he wants, effectively, and then when they're going to help him take the easy way out, he sort of flinches away from it because he realizes it's not right. It's Well, first off, it's terrifying to him because, you know, the entire film is the fear of him not being good enough and seeing that someone else is going to carry him the whole way. This right. is a literal representation of a dangerous situation. Of course, the sad thing is Gowan's misunderstanding that the concept of Getting far on the shoulders of giants is not an indictment of oneself. It's no. just a acknowledgement of those who have come before you and laid the the groundwork. It's true. It's okay to view the world from the eyes of the or from the shoulders of the giants. It's true. But on the other hand, he is trying to make his quest easier, and it's a quest where he's supposed to be proving himself. That's yeah. a fair point. Now we haven't talked about one of the most important characters who also plays a role in that scene, which is. Gowan's fox friend. Fox boy. So the fox boy is following him around the entire time. This it, is our name for him. Yeah. For him or her. I mean, but fox boy is a gender neutral term. We should our specify. Name. It is a fox in appearance, not like an anime boy with fox ears. Right. It's like That's a, a different fox boy. Yes. It's an animal. But if you want to... Re-edit the movie with those those scenes with a fox boy in place of the fox and send it to us. I think that that would actually work just as well. Yeah, we'll accept that. It would not be out of character for the movie. No, it wouldn't at all. But so, what's the deal with this fox, guys? I think it's like his familiar or his um, spirit helper. I was just imagining a crossover with King Arthur: Legend of the Sword, where they go. That's when you're going to need to help a fox boy. Yeah, fox boy's a good boy. Nice. <laughs> to be honest, I think the fox is a spy for his mother. Interesting. So why, I know why, but why do you think that? What scene makes you think of that? Uh, later on, after the giants, after the castle, 
when Gwyn is finally going to get to the chapel, he's going to be crossing a river that will get him to the chapel. And the fox runs in front of him and tries to stop and is growling at him. Suddenly starts talking to him. Which may just be <laughs> Gowan imagining the fox uh, talking. But hey, who true. knows? But the fox at one point during the conversation, he's trying to get Gwyn not to go through with it because the fox is saying, like, you're not going to get anything out of this. There's no point. And the fox begins speaking English at this point. Yeah, he's saying that it's futile, that there's nothing that will really be proven by him going to his death. And it won't prove, like, his glory or virtue or honor. It would be senseless, basically. And Gwyn's arguing with him over this. And then the fox says, come home with me. That is a good point. That line. And he repeats that. And when he said that, I just felt like it was his mother talking to him. Yes. The only thing that kind of, I think, confounds that is that it really seems in the beginning of the movie like Morgan summoned the Green Knight. She did because she was doing a ritual with some of her handmaidens. And as she was doing this ritual, the Green Knight was coming in. And um, it was very clear that she was calling him in based on the cinematography and the context of the scenes. I got the impression that she was either calling him in to challenge Arthur because she loves fucking with Arthur. <laughs> Classic brother-sister relationship. Uh, Phrasing. Morgan kind of hates Arthur for um, basically betrayal. She, she feels like he's betrayed her in the past. Although it does depend on the version of the map. It does. But... In this, they seem to get along pretty well, but, like, not be super close. But um, either she's trying to fuck with him, or she's trying to give Gawain a gimme. Like, here's an easy way to prove yourself. And he fucking creates a trap for himself, and she's kind of like, how did you do this? <laughs> how? you? <laughs> I don't know. I give you a W, and you turn it into an L. How, son? <laughs> yes. Exactly. It, it's the the line "Come home with me" definitely smacks of his mother, like enchanting this fox to be her eyes and ears. She's and, trying and to help guide him. for Gowan. She's trying to help him throughout the entire quest. She gives him the sash with the rune carving woven into it. That's supposed to be like a magical protection for him, so that he can't come to any harm. It's taken from him. And then he does go through a lot of trials and tribulations after that. But then he gets another version of, version it. of it. So it's in the castle. Highly likely that Morgan has something to do with the Lord and Lady and the blindfolded woman. Yeah. I figured that was Morgan. Hanging out in the castle with the Lord and Lady. Yeah, I mean, could very well be. It's a very surreal scene where Gowan sees this castle. He's like trudging through the rain. He sees the lights on in this castle and the Lord is like, oh, you're so lucky. Like a week later and I'd be out of, you know, I'd be out in the country or whatever. I thought the Lord and Lady might represent a seasonal concept. Mm -hmm. Like if you came back in a week, I would not be here because I am the embodiment of winter. Right. And in a week, winter, but it's Christmas time. So it's still pretty deep winter. But so... 
I can see why you thought the blindfolded woman in the castle was Morgan in disguise because in the ritual she put on a blindfold. Yes. Little overlapping visual narrative. And the lady in the castle gives him another sash that's got the same carvings inside and Mm -hmm. is a magical protection to bring him no harm. And she says very similar things about it and describes it in almost exactly the same way that Morgan, his mother, described it in the beginning. So she's kind of with him the whole time. I don't think she was trying to hurt him. There are def- There's definitely room for interpretation for why she called in the Green Knight. That's just mine. We also get one of the most explicit spooge uh, scenes I've ever yeah, seen in a movie. I mean, like a Hollywood movie. Right. Right. <laughs> there are other films, but they're of the sure. adult nature. <laughs> I've heard of these films. Yeah, it was interesting. Usually you don't see that. And it was all on his belt, too. <laughs> that's rough. <laughs> but yeah, um, that's interesting. I mean, that goes along with the Christian ideals of the night, I think. Yeah, well, you know, since we're talking about come. Let's talk about pagan magic. All right. <laughs> perfect segue. I if you're a pagan, you know exactly why that's a perfect segue. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if we just want to stay in that scene for a second. Yes, definitely. <laughs> it is more of like a pagan ritual to consecrate the belt with your own seed, um, seed your own element Sweet of... Sweet and spicy sauce. <laughs> Well, your own element of life, you know, that's the symbolism there. Blood, cum, whatever you got. <laughs> yeah. And it imbues it with the power of life. Hey, just a quick note. Chelsea, make sure to uh, label this episode explicit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, so that that did feel like a form of pagan magic to me. Definitely. Witchcraft. Yeah, I, I thought so too. Mm-hmm. Sex magic. You're no knight, but you're a good pagan boy. Yeah. <laughs> I raise you Finn McCool and his Celtic knights. Okay. Okay. Let's Not talk about addressed. Them. However, Finn McCool and his gaggle of knights were very similar to the round table. A little lesser known mythological collection. Okay. However, they're pagan round table, sort of. Yeah. They sound yeah. cool to me. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Try looking that up if you can spell it, listeners. <laughs> it is not phonetic. I was going to say, is it Welsh? Because if it's Welsh, there's like a lot of W's in there. I think it's Gaelic. <laughs> and O-U-G-H's. Augs. <laughs> well, written out, it looks like Fionn McCumail. <laughs> and it's pronounced Finn McCool. Which is just the worst. I don't understand the problem with this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Seems perfectly legit to me. Um, but all the other creatures that Gwen crosses paths with are creatures out of myth and legend. Like foxes. And scavengers. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> foxes that toxes. Yeah. Talking animals. Um, Gigants. Spirits. Um, Gigantes, sorry. Trickster, trickster beings, because that scavenger took his horse and his axe, but then the axe is back with him later on. I mean, it was his axe. You can't take his axe. And that trickster tried to mislead him, and he said, you're in the Green Chapel, but then 
I think he was a fae spirit. I don't think he was a human. Now, see, I'm not sure. I guess it is it in Gowan's vision where he crosses by the the scavenger again. He's on the road. I think it's in his vision. He's on the road, and the scavenger is there, seemingly like wandering lost on the road as yeah. Gowan rides by. If it I was on it was the, the journey home, home, it was in his vision. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have a bearing of truth. He may be seeing a legitimate... He's in the Green Chapel. He's in a place of otherworldly fey magic. That vision could very well be prophetic. But that line, you're already there when he's in the forest and he asks where the Green Chapel is. That concept is a pagan concept. Oh, absolutely. That all of nature is your chapel. It's a sacred place. Sure. So I think he's a fae folk of some type. He might be. I mean, he's definitely uh, a trickstery fellow. I mean, when he's looting corpses and being like, "Oh, my brothers uh, fought and died in this war. My mom wanted me to go to war, but if I did, I'd be dead too." And that could be a reference to some mythological figure or legendary figure. But at before, when he's giving Gwyn the directions that will lead him to the ambush. Little does Gwen know this, but um, the scavenger says to him as Gwen is leaving, remember the stream, but it really sounds like he says, remember the dream. Remember this dream. It will get confusing later. And so it really makes it seem like the whole thing is a dream. I mean, the dialogue of Sir Gowan... And the Green Knight, the poem, is incredibly deliberate. Mm-hmm. And like it's five, it stands as a five uh, lines and there's 25 stanzas. And but there's like intentional breaks in that cadence. Yeah. That are very meaningful. And there's a way that words are used in the poem that are meant to evoke the it's onomatopoeia. the The sound is supposed to represent the things that are happening in the action of the story, right? So that works really well, or that that kind of reminds me of what you're saying. How this dream and stream, there's this intentional wordplay that listeners are supposed to pick up as they watch the film, right? I think you're right because this is a movie of crazy dream logic. Yes. And this does lead us to getting deeper into the whole magical aspect of this. So there are interesting interplays between the Christian and the pagan magics. Let's talk about them. First of all, symbolism, the five-pointed star, a pentagram, a pentacle, which in the movie is circled. Yes, which in the film is referenced as representing the five noble virtues of nightdom and the five wounds of Christ on the cross. It's also a pagan symbol and also a symbol used by Celtic Reconstructionists. And it was uh, used in, by the Celts. And it symbolizes earth, air, fire, water, and spirit and the connection between all of those. So it's interesting because that symbol has meaning for multiple traditions. And in the story, in the, in the poem, it is the symbol on Gowan's shield. So that is actually goes back to the original source material for this movie. Yeah. And it's kind of like Gawain is the symbol of the bridge 
between pagan and Christian faiths. You're saying as a relative of Morgan Le Fay and of Arthur? Yeah. And he has the symbol that unites both of them. They both use this powerful symbol. And Morgan is a powerful witch, pagan practitioner in her own right. Her rituals are mirroring the priest's ritual. Uh, That's right. Yeah, so when the priest is anointing Gawain's gear before he's setting out on his mission, Morgan Le Fay, his mother, is uh, doing her own ritual and um, chanting her own blessings for her son. And crafting the green sash with the protective charm in it. Yes, which she gives to him. So they're kind of coexisting right? in this story. Actually, another uh, point in favor of the highway people being trickster fey is they break the shield with the um, emblem of Mary and Jesus that's been yes. anointed by the priest. And they, they shatter it. They don't really hurt Gawain. They're more like annoying tricksters. They're messing with him, challenging him, not really seriously harming him. They're making his journey uncomfortable. They're a, <laughs> they're a bump in the road, not a wall that can't be scaled. They're really just trying to scare him. Maybe they know how scary the Green Knight is. And the, or not how, how not scary he the, is. I don't know. The scavenger, the trickster, takes the the axe and says, I will complete your quest for you. <laughs> I mean, uh, the idea of pagan spirits kind of or, or entities being kind of at war with each other also fits into myth and legend pretty well. It's also kind of playful at the end and less antagonistic. Yeah. They just, like you said, they're kind of just fucking with everyone. Yeah. Each other, even. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's pretty good. I, I kind of liked that. <laughs> I suppose I'll include that in addition to the shield being broken, he also loses his armor mm -hmm. and his bow and a number of other things that he had available to him. Basically, his whole kit. At the end, he only has the Green Knight's axe and the Green Sash, which are the pagan things he was bringing along, but he's on a pagan quest, so makes sense. Yeah. yeah. If he was going to find the Holy Grail, he'd probably want the other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Sword and armor would probably be good. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. It's like um, strife between the old and new traditions, the pagan and the Christian faiths. And neither one really wins over the other. It's kind of like a back and forth struggle. And it's kind of symbolized by these colors, the green. So the lady has this speech at the castle one night where she's interrogating Gwyn, asking him why she thinks the night is green. Right. And Gwyn says, well, he was probably just born that way. <laughs> And the That's lady, him answering the question to himself. Why are you afraid? Yeah. I was just born this way. The lady says that it's the color of nature, of growing things. Right. But the way she describes it further is almost more dark and sinister. She says, it's the color over your grave. It's the color over your moldering bones after you're dead. It's the color... That spreads out over crumbling civilizations after they've fallen. It's relentless. It's... <laughs> it's awesome! It's 
the color that lingers after passion and ardor, which are red, subsided. You're just left with green. And it's like the inevitable entropy of any human endeavor is just going to be covered up by nature and you cannot fight against it. It's futile. Whoa. And so this is his greatest fear to die and be forgotten. And that is his greatest fear that he has to overcome. And that is what she is challenging his, him in his mind and spirit with in that moment. And forcing him to face that fear of just being gone and forgotten. And his life to have meant nothing. Good read. So why do you guys think his cape is yellow? He's a coward. Well, it's the color of royalty, gold. Well, purple would have been the color of royalty, right? Yeah, but it's like the color of the sun. Wasn't the sun a symbol of Arthur? His crown has a sun halo behind the crown, and so does Guinevere's. And I think it's their colors. I think it's to show his loyalty to them. I think it's that and also what Jack said, that yellow tends to be associated with the idea of being yellow-bellied or cowardly. It's true. Also, I'm pretty sure one of Gawain's titles is the Radiant One as well, similar to Lou mm-hmm. from Celtic mythology. Yeah. But he's supposed to be a shining beacon of goodness. Right. Which they we don't see in this. Of yeah. light and hope. Yeah. Yeah. And Christian virtues. Yeah. Well, he loses it really early in this film. He gets it back, though. Yeah. Which is good. He wears it, I mean, but he never, he he wears it for as long as he bears his cowardice. Yes. So the symbol, the Christian symbol on his shield is also a pagan one. It is the Virgin Mary with her son. That's Jesus for um, those of you who aren't sure. Yes. And it's often been speculated that she could be a stand-in for uh, the goddess from various pagan traditions and um, kind of generalized. And especially in the Catholic faith, she has a prominence and importance that would normally have been given to the goddess. So it's how the goddess worship survived in Christian faith. It's, it's one theory. I know we touched on it a little bit, but since you mentioned the whole thing about Green and how Gawain wants to make sure he's not forgotten. Yes. Right? That's his biggest fear. I think it's important to go back and just touch on that bad ending timeline that we got to see. Because he thought that the worst thing that could happen would be that he would die by the knight cutting his head off and no one remembers who he was, right? Right. It's identical to him lying bound in that forest and becoming that skeleton. But we saw through that bad ending vision that he gets that he would get pretty much everything he's dreamed of. Yes. Become the king, be honored by everyone, get Excalibur, get a noble woman as a queen, have a kid, go into battle, right? But it still doesn't work out. Yeah. And in the end, everyone leaves him because he was not true to himself. Because he cheated to get where he was. Yes. 
he lived a life full of regret and could never respect himself or love anyone thoroughly because he could never apply that to himself. And his either. because he never faced or bested his fears, they constantly hounded him. Yes. Represented by him always wearing the sash in that vision. Yes. And so he could never get close to anyone. Cruelty became one of his common practices. Yeah. Not very virtuous, if you ask me. It was. Pr I wouldn't be surprised if the people trying to get into the castle were his own subjects rebelling against him. That makes sense. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that, because it sounds a lot to me like that is a form of class struggle. So here's the other thing about Gowan. He seems, I think, to kind of resent the lower classes, the peasantry. He only ever talks to people who are of his station. He refuses to talk to those children who are on the road with him, the peasant children. The, the locals have these puppet shows of Gowan's story, which has made him kind of famous. But in the puppet story, the tale ends with Gowan being beheaded, which is his biggest fear. And it really seems to me like he is, you know, I mean, I guess fittingly for this time period and everything when class divides were incredibly rigid. But he seems to have this resentment where he only ever talks to nobles and people with higher stations, landowners, for example, Winifred and the Lord and the Lady. Mm -hmm. He thinks they're great. Yeah, but he has almost no interactions. He basically has no interactions with anybody beneath his station except for the scavenger who he really just doesn't want anything to do with, really. He's constantly trying to get out of the conversation. And it is because of his stinginess of not giving the scavenger more coins that he refuses to, let's say, distribute wealth. Yeah. To the lower, poorer classes. That is why he is punished. It is a morality tale for those who have a great deal and refuse to spread that amongst the people in a way that would benefit everyone. Yeah, I mean, Gwyn's true failing isn't that he doesn't have a story to tell about himself. It's that he's not generous. Exactly. With his time or his extra money <laughs> like he he's kind of close to Essel but then also doesn't really engage with her or try to get very close to her when she's opening her heart to him the only reason they have a relationship is because of commerce right she's basically just his favorite prostitute to, in his eyes I'm saying mm -hmm. not, I, not like I don't think the film frames it that way but that is his perception that she's only important so far as she can provide him with sexual release. Mm -hmm. And it's a transactional relationship. Right. But when it comes to his imagined spouse, partner, it's a noble woman. Mm -hmm. He could have had this relationship with Essel, but he throws that away in the vision. All he wants is the child that she bears for him. After that, their relationship is over. Yeah. He believes that he should be king. But he has a problematic 
relationship to authority, he can't really talk to Arthur when Arthur's trying to open up to him because he's above Gawain. Right. He doesn't even feel like he should be sitting with Arthur when he's called to sit beside him. Mm-hmm. His own uncle. Yeah. Because in Gawain's mind, the class system is incredibly rigid. And again, this is fitting for the time period, but this is not a character who sees beyond the structures that are in front of him, obviously. Yeah. I think that's part of what makes him feel so lonely and what makes his fears and challenges worse because he ends up going out on this quest alone. None of the other knights would have gone on quests alone. They would have had their compatriots there with them. Retainers. Yeah. Men at arms. He kind of creates a self-fulfilling prophecy for himself. He's trying to live up this ideal version of chivalry and heroics that, like Chelsea said, the other knights probably don't do that. They didn't want to fight the Green Knight solo. But it's this dying age of chivalry, too. Arthur and Guinevere and all the knights are getting older. The Arthurian age is dwindling. It's dying off. And Gwyn is trying to keep that last vestige of it alive, kind of in his mind. He's almost like Don Quixote. Good call. Yeah, it does have some kind of smatterings of that. And it's a tragic story, really. But in the end, it's just a game. So I would agree that it's wholly a tragedy, except the very ending is, like, supposed to imply it's a happy ending, right? Because he doesn't get beheaded and he finds his knightly virtue. Right. So this was, like, all the character growth, and then you just assume what happens next is... He's like a good knight from this point forward. Hopefully. Right? But we don't know if he's happy. I think the idea is that he is. I mean... Because he finally did something that in his eyes is respectable. The post-credits, like, very short blip is... Seems to be Gowan's daughter, who was with the... He had a daughter with the noblewoman. He had a son with Essel. So I don't know if he goes back and and has the happy life that we might be imagining. It's hard to say. Who knows? But he did do at least one thing he finds respectable in his whole life. Taking off that cummy belt. Yeah. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, we've said a lot about this movie. I think it's time to head into the smithy. Welcome to the Smithy, where we forge a rating for this film after we each share an epic moment or feature from the movie. Chelsea, do you want to tell us your epic moment or feature and then give it a rating between one and ten head-chopping axes? (laughs) Wow. I mean, this movie takes you on a wild ride. It's visually stunning. And I'm talking myself into my feature here. My epic feature is the language they used. Yeah. I really enjoyed how they used different forms of language to differentiate between the context. 
that Gwen was in. So when he was with people on the road and like common people and just out with his friends or with Essel, it's kind of a more naturalistic form of speech. And maybe some words are archaic, but it's something that feels closer to modern speech. And it makes those parts feel more relatable. Mm-hmm. And then when he's in Arthur's court, speaking with the king and queen, and when he's speaking with the lord and lady, although to a lesser extent, it's more like Middle English, and it feels a lot more formal. So we're getting some medieval code switching. Yeah. And so those kind of create a distance for the audience so that it's more like you're watching this spectacle. Right. So it's really interesting the way it pushes back and pulls you in with the language. And so I thought that was a really neat feature. I'm going to give this movie 10 out of 10 head chopping axes. Very Um, nice. Wow! It's one of the best movies we've ever watched on the show. It is artistic and it's a masterpiece. I mean, we've had a few masterpieces on the show. I'm not elevating it above the other ones I've given a 10 to, but it's... I was going to say, the last airbender. No. <laughs> um, Just visiting. Polar Express. Oh, God. Oh, no. The other Christmas movie. Yes. So it just really makes you think you have to pay attention to all the symbolism. Um, it gives you a lot to chew on as a viewer. It challenges you. And I feel like I could go back and watch it again and again and get something new out of it each time. And I think that's the hallmark of a good film. Very nice. Jack, how about your epic moment or feature and a rating from 1 to 10 head chopping axes? My epic feature are Sir Gawain's flaws. He has flaws? Yes. Wow. Or at least weaknesses, right? You were mentioning how some people are probably going to take issue with this film because Sir Gawain is not the most stereotypical Chad alpha male, you know what I'm saying, type of stereotypical hero, right? He's not confident. He doubts himself. He's greedy a lot of the time. He's got a lot of issues. But the point is... Sir Gawain will remember this. You know he is gonna be that guy one day. I feel that anyway. Sure. Because Sir Gawain, it, people understand him as the goodest boy, right? Yeah. From the legend. And yes, I love the idea that this is how that starts. Right, that's cool. Because if someone can start out this rough of a person, like a noble getting drunk amongst commoners and kicking the shit out of them, to be... Not a cool move. Not cool. To becoming cool. That's a great message, I think. I I like to view the ending as Sir Gowan taking the belt off and doing the first thing that he can really be proud of. 
And that opens his eyes, just seeing that horrible timeline where he can't love Ethel or, or Essel. Everyone turns away from him. He's cruel. He does all this bad stuff. He gets everything he wanted and he loses what's important, right? Yeah. I love that idea that right at the end is that flip like a light switch moment he was talking to the man in the woods about. Like, he finds his honor right then and he becomes who he was meant to be. And I thought that was really cool. And I know that from this point forward, he's still going to be super flawed, but it's on the road to becoming that shining beacon of goodness and like the five nightly virtues. Yeah. So I thought that was sick. This is how you do an origin story, dude. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well good. said. But the whole film. Yeah. I just the very little dialogue and having the visuals tell you everything was so incredible. I was worried you were going to give it a lower rating than you did, Chelsea. Really? I was I was worried you were going to be like, oh, it was good, but I think I'm going to settle down here. And I was like, oh, that's too bad because I was planning on giving it a 10 out of 10. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to give it 10 out of 10 head chopping axes. I think this is a masterpiece. Also, this is probably one of my favorite films. Wow. Having only seen it once, I think it's already put itself up there. This is just like what, uh, this is an incredible film. It is. You really have to be open to thinking about what you're seeing, though, because the movie's not holding your hand. Or you can just listen to our interpretation. Ha ah, that's, <laughs> that's what we're here for. <laughs> Speaking of, what did you think, Jamie? <laughs> what was your epic moment and or feature in your epic rating out of 10 head chopping axes? Well, I'm glad you asked. I liked how you asked what his epic rating was. What is <laughs> my that? epic rating? Yeah. <laughs> One million out of 10. No! <laughs> That's an epic rating. I didn't know it could go that high. <laughs> um, boy, I am hard pressed to come up with a single moment or feature especially one that we haven't already covered in exhaustive detail right i am just going to cite for my epic feature the visual storytelling of this movie this is what filmmaking should be in my opinion i love lots of movies that do not rely on visual mastery and i enjoy them very much but i love it when i am taken into the film and absorbed in the story and so much that I'm, I I found myself in certain moments scanning the movie to see what was going on and looking for little details. And there's something I noticed, like there's a long shot of a hillside while Gowan is riding through the country and I saw something moving on the hill. I did right. too. And I don't know what it was, it was or what it's, it. It looked like a bear. I thought it was a bear. A it giant was. bear. A it looked like a bear. big brown bear. And I was like, is this going to mean something? Or is this just world building and flavor to draw you in and to trick the viewer? And like, not in a bad way, to like set you up for expectations and tension. And I thought what was so fascinating was that the rocks on the hillside Right above the bear looked like a rib, giant Yes, rib it did. Yeah. It so looked. there's just so much stuff like that that tells this amazing story beyond the dialogue. Yes. Just in the composition of the shots 
And I was just sitting there like, oh man, this is just the most one of the most visually impressive movies I've ever it's seen. It's like world building. It is this elaborate world building. It's dark. It's dripping with atmosphere and this spooky aesthetic that it's so just totally wet. works. It's very moist. <laughs> the whole movie. Especially Gowan's girdle. Yeah. <laughs> It's this dark and scary world, and still I wanted to be there. Yeah. I wanted to be in. I was like, where are these shots being filmed? I want to go there. I want to go on a pilgrimage and see these places because they're just these amazing compositions. Everything looks rich and lived in, and it just creates this full experience that I absolutely adored. So you'll probably not be surprised when I say that this movie has earned the coveted rating of 10 out of 10 head chopping axes yeah. from me too. Nice. It is a nearly perfect film in my opinion. And I love how it is a massive subversion, not just of the legend, but of filmmaking expectations for a nightly quote unquote heroic story that Gowan is not at all a hero that he is cowardly flawed greedy and yet it makes him so much more human and relatable yes people are not just often just so bold and brave in the face of everything people who are professional fighters and stuff still get butterflies before big fights. Yeah. Like knights were soldiers. They weren't just probably not all of them were just like raring the go all the time. There was hesitation. I'm sure there was fear and, and a desire yeah. to like return home and be with your loved ones. And, and yet still a sense of pride about what you're doing. I I have to imagine that this is like a story that is timeless. Yes. To act without fear is foolhardy. But to perform your duties anyway is an act of bravery and and courageousness. Yeah. Well said. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I absolutely love this movie. I plan to watch it many more times. I want to, you know, pick apart every scene and and watch it outside of a theater where we can like talk about it. But also yeah. I'd love to see it in a theater again, if that's even a possibility tomorrow or the next day when who knows what the future brings. But um, yeah, I want to see it again on the big screen. I want to see it on small screens. I want to own this film when it comes out on Blu-ray. I fucking love this movie. So as uh, it's very clear now, this is a 30 out of 30 head chop and axes movie for the satirists right here. Well deserved. Well deserved. Well worth the over one year wait that I've been going through waiting for this movie to come out. Huzzah. Huzzah. <laughs> Indeed. Verily. Forsooth. Lest. <laughs> and that'll pretty much do it for us here at Swords and Satire. But if you had a good time, maybe consider following us on social media at Swords and Satire on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter so that you can keep up with the show and what we're doing and, most importantly, what we're watching. And we already mentioned Patreon. You know all about this. You can go to... Be our Arthur. Yes. You could go to patreon.com 
slash swords and satire and join our patron community. You already know all about that. Extra bonus content, voting on the movies we watched, all that good stuff. We'll assume that your fingers are typing that in right now. We already talked about it earlier. How quickly you forget. Use your head. Come on now. (laughs) (laughs) But what do people do if they want to support us, but they just don't have those extra coins to pass around? I'll tell you what they can do. They can set up a puppet booth in their local town square, play one of our podcast episodes, and use puppets to act out the scenes from the movies we discuss. Beautiful. That'll really get the word out there. It's as easy as that. I love it. Well then, until next time, Hail Hail Crom! Crom!